0: Good morning. It is a privilege to open up God's Word with you. My goal today is the same goal I have every week, which is to read the Word, explain the Word, and apply the Word accurately and in an engaging manner. And trust the Holy Spirit to do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do in us and through us for His glory. With that in in mind, please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're back in 1 Peter today. We are bringing this series in for a landing in, in several weeks. We're in the last 10 verses of 1 Peter, and it's somewhat bittersweet because I love Peter so much. But we are in the book of Acts next, and so we will not forget about Peter We will see him a lot. Before you stand with me and before I read God's word, let me ask a question. How do you know if you are growing in Christ? How do you know if you are maturing as a believer? What are the signs of spiritual maturity? It would be very easy for us to point to outward activities and say, I'm reading my Bible a lot. I'm in prayer groups. I'm in ministries. I'm giving. I'm sharing my faith. All good things, but all things that can be counterfeited. Every one of those things can be faked and have a heart that is not right with God. And as Peter is bringing his letter to a close, he is zeroing in on the idea of standing firm in Christ. He is zeroing in on some inner life issues of the heart where God sees, where there is no hiding, where there is no pretending. And I think it's amazing that Peter is the one that the Holy Spirit uses to give us these words. Peter whose faith was shaky, Peter who denied Jesus, Peter who whose track record wasn't stellar. This man was grown deep in Christ through suffering. And through pain, and so he is the perfect person for God to use to bring these words to us and to give that suffering church some encouragement. If you can, stand with me, please. I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Over the next several weeks, we're going to see eight... Marks of standing firm in Christ. We're going to look at two of them today in verses 5 and 6 of 1 Peter 5. But right now I'll read 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. This is the word of God. Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Lord God, thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are here, and that by your spirit you want to change us by your word. And we pray you'd have your way with our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen. This is our 33rd sermon in 1 Peter. That's not really that many. I did 168 sermons in Matthew over five years and 50 sermons in Hebrews over several years. So 33 sermons is not that many. But this might be your first Sunday at Grace. And you're thinking, how am I going to catch up? All you need to do is go to our website and listen to all of the sermons before next Sunday, you'll be caught up. It's as simple as that. Now, seriously, if you are a believer today, and if this is your first time at Grace, God has something to say to you in his word from 1 Peter 5, verses 5-7. through Something very significant. He has directed the trajectory of your life To this place on this day for his purposes, and what you hear today from his word is what God wants you to hear. My biggest prayer is that my words, which are faulty and that don't always come out the right way, won't mess up what he wants to say through his word. Word is powerful. If you're not a believer, what you will hear today is the, the gospel of the grace of God in Christ and of his shed blood on the cross in your place as your substitute. And you will hear of his love and his mercy and his grace and you will be called to humble yourself before him and believe in the Lord Jesus who died for your sins. After 32 sermons in Peter, we are now upon the last section and what Peter is giving us are final exhortations. He is giving us imperative commands based upon God's indicative actions. He has said over and over again, here is what God has done for us in Christ. And then here is how we are to live as a result. He's talking about standing firm in Christ and eight times in the New Testament we are told to stand firm. 1 Corinthians 16:13 says be on the alert stand firm in the faith. Ephesians 6:13 says therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done everything stand firm. And if you're anything like me you probably feel on a daily basis that you are in a tug of war between good and evil, between righteousness and unrighteousness, between your desires and God's desires that aren't matching up. You're struggling, and you're proclaiming your faith in Christ, but until you see Jesus, you will be in that tug of war. It's the way it is. I think it would be helpful at this point to to do somewhat of a recap on 1 Peter where we've been helpful for all of us helpful if you're new but also helpful if you've been with us the whole time let's remember who Peter was writing to he's writing to as he says in the first verses the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia The, the pilgrims in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And the Christians to which Peter was writing were primarily Gentile. There were some Jews among them. And Peter said, and this is probably the verse I have quoted the most as I've gone through First Peter. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the title of this whole series, Living Hope. And it is a hope that nothing can crush. Nothing. Peter's writing to a group of Christians that are suffering. And they're in danger of losing their bearings, of losing their way they had this newfound faith in Christ they were living this newfound faith in Christ amongst their unbelieving family members and friends and neighbors and they were being tested people they knew were opposed to their new life in Christ it was tough going Peter is telling them and and he's doing it to encourage them but he's saying it's going to get worse They probably didn't expect this to happen when they first heard the gospel. They figured their life would be a breeze. But every generation of believers faces the same thing. You and I are facing the same thing. We are going to suffer in this life. There will be the tug of war going on. And it will be between sin. It will be between good and bad and sin and righteousness. And there will be... There will be internal struggles. There will be external struggles. There will be struggles amongst Christians. There will be struggles with unbelievers. Every generation of believers faces the same thing. might not always look the same. But the Holy Spirit uses Peter to meet the needs of the church and meet our needs by reassuring them and us of the gospel. He has done it over and over again in this letter. Chapter 2, he says in verse 24, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls literally the words for pastor and elder. He says in chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He is telling them again and again, you have got this amazing gift of eternal life in Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have worked together to bring you new life if you're a christian today you can be assured of what peter told these suffering christians your past is forgiven your present is protected he says that in chapter one you're you're protected by the power of god you're kept by the power of god for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time and you can know with assurance that your future is assured. Verse 4 of chapter 1. He says you have an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It is unfading. And it is reserved in heaven for you. And you're going through suffering. And you're going through pain. And you'll go through a lot of it. And you have a hope in heaven. Verse 7 of chapter 1. It says that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is so fixated on the return of Christ. I love it. We should be fixated on the return of Christ. So Peter is ministering to these suffering Christians and he's focusing on the return of Christ. He's encouraging them with those words. We should be encouraged with the words that our salvation is secure in Christ and that Jesus is going to return. There is a day that God has fixed by His own authority in which all the pain and suffering and tears and anguish of this earthly life will be done. It's our hope, and it's secure. But I know that everyone is tempted to question why suffering is necessary to our journey of faith. Peter has told us it tests our discipleship. It unites us to fellow Christians. We see in this passage in chapter 5 that your brotherhood throughout the world is going through the same kind of suffering. He's told us that we are aliens and strangers scattered in the world. We're part of the people of God journeying to our heavenly homeland. And He has told us that our new life is to be lived out in very practical ways. Because of the indicative things that God has done, there are imperatives by which we must live. It should affect our everyday relationships as husbands and wives, and employees and citizens and the like. And so 1 Peter is a very practical letter that equips believers, followers of Jesus, to live in the real world amid persecution and hardship. And it's a letter that prepares believers for the world to come, that Jesus is preparing for us. Peter has said that God's salvation, his sovereign gift of salvation, meets our deepest needs. And that salvation affects our daily life. We're to live like Jesus, We're to be holy as He is holy. Chapter one. We are to love other Christians. End of chapter one. We are to desire to grow by craving the word of God, beginning of chapter two. We are the part of the people of God that should be a part of a local fellowship, Chapter two. We're to live before our family in Christ and the watching world in such a way that we are good examples of Christ. Chapter two and three. We are to live for Christ in the midst of suffering, chapters 3 and 4. We're to be led by godly leaders, and that's where we are at here. the first four verses of chapter 5, we've looked at. We're to be led by godly leaders, elders, shepherds of the flock. And now, in the last ten verses, Peter is really saying, here's how you're to be a good follower of Christ. Here's what it means to stand firm in the midst of suffering. I think it's right for us to ask, how? How do you stand firm in the midst of suffering? I will just say this. You have to go back to the basics because that's where Peter is taking us. You've got to go back to the fundamentals, the basics of the faith, the basics of Christian growth and maturity. Many of you know that I have coached a lot of sports because I've got a lot of kids ranging in age from 22 down to 12. And so I have coached basketball, baseball, soccer for 10, 10 to 15 years, all those sports. And I also coached one season, one season of softball. <laughs> but if you come to one of my practices, if you're on my team, here's what you hear. First practice, and every practice after that, all the way to the end of the season. Come to soccer practice, I say, we're gonna work on the fundamentals, the basics. We're gonna teach you how to kick a ball. We're gonna teach you how to pass that ball and we're gonna teach you how to score that ball in a goal. You come to basketball practice and you're gonna hear from me, you're gonna learn the fundamentals, fundamentals, the basics. We're gonna learn how to dribble and how to shoot and had to pass every single practice and we're going to do this over and over and over again doesn't that sound like fun and I tell them the pros do this the pros do this at every practice they work on the fundamentals so I think it's only right for Peter to to bring us in talking about standing firm in Christ to bring us to to basics We want to snap our fingers and have instant maturity. I was talking to a friend of mine who went through some very horrendous pain in their life. Really tough, tough things. And they told me, they said, you know what I was doing during that time? I I was asking all my friends, show me in the Bible exactly what I'm supposed to do in this situation so that it just goes away and so that I can learn really quick what I need to learn through this. And they said, oh, how wrong I was. This is a process. You know, we want microwave spirituality. We want it now, and that is not the way God works with us. What did Jesus, what does it say about Jesus? He learned obedience through what? He suffered. That's what we do. We learn obedience through suffering. I want to show you something before I take you to the first two marks of standing firm in Christ. I want to show you a connection between these verses here and something that Peter said earlier in the book. Go to chapter 2, verse 2, because there's a really good connection here, and we don't want to miss it. If we don't see this connection, then we will build our ideas of what Peter is saying here on, on the wrong foundation. We don't want to do that. The connection here is between chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 and 3. It says this. Put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. If we could just do that on a daily basis, it would, our lives would be awesome, wouldn't, wouldn't they? And the power of the Holy Spirit put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And then he says this. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. I love how we have so many babies, newborn babies at Grace, and every one of them isn't asking for Gatorade. They're asking for their mama's milk, by which they get the nutrients and the food that their little bodies need. And Peter is saying, you, like newborn babies, you long for the pure spiritual milk, the milk of the word. And here's the reason, that by it you may grow up to salvation. So when Peter starts talking about standing firm at the end of the letter, you've got to go back to chapter 2, verse 2, where it says that you need to long to crave the word because that's how you grow to salvation. So when he gives us these attitudes in chapter 5, they're really attitudes that spring out of our lives and, and show themselves in actions. But when he gives us these attitudes, we need to know that they're based on the inerrant, infallible, inspired, unchanging, eternal word of God. We need to know that with assurance. We need to be settled about that. Peter In 2 Peter 3.18, it says, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's God's intent for us. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. So how do you know you're standing firm in Him? How do you know you're maturing? How do you know you're going deeper in Christ? What does it take? Again, it would be very easy for us to point to the outward things and say, I memorized 1 Peter or I memorize the whole book of the Bible, or I'm in all these prayer groups, or I'm I'm sharing my faith with everyone that moves, or I'm, I'm doing these ministries, and those are great things, but they can be faked, and they can spring out of the wrong heart. Peter is pointing us to attitudes of the inner life, the hidden heart that only God sees, but that people see in our actions so eight attitudes revealed in our actions the first two today in subsequent weeks we'll get to the others we're really going to look only at verses five and six today over the next several weeks we'll go all the way to verse 14 and then and then say goodbye to first peter for a while i've been listening to first peter by the way pretty much daily for like over a year and it's has changed my life. It has changed my heart. Let me tell you the first one. It's not popular. Verse 5. And when you read it, you're going to go, this doesn't seem to fit. Verse 5 says, likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. You're like, hold on a second. Now we're singling out one group in the church and telling them to, to be subject to the elders. How's this about an attitude That's that's talking about standing firm in Christ well the idea behind it is this it's submission to God and others that's the first marker that's the first really evidence that you're standing firm in Christ that you are submitting your soul to God and submitting to others that God has put in leadership over you in the church so first under God's leadership and authority you submit to God you're acknowledging his authority he is the highest authority You submit to elders, you're you're saying, God has placed them over me for my good. So likewise, you who are younger, but well, does that mean that older people don't need to subject themselves to the elders? And some of your Bible translations say, likewise, younger men actually is a good translation. So let's just say it's talking about the younger men. Well, what about the young women? Are they not supposed to subject themselves to the elders or the older men or the older women? What's going on with that? What Peter is doing is he's speaking to everyone while he's pointing one group out. He's basically saying all of you need to subject yourself to the elders, but especially you younger men who have a propensity not to do so. It's kind of like in Ephesians 5 when Paul is speaking to husbands and wives. Husbands, Love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Well, that doesn't mean that husbands aren't to respect their wives and wives aren't to love their husbands. But God, the Holy Spirit, is pointing out the things that we are more prone to not do. So you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Verses 1 through 4 of 1 Peter 5, he's been talking about good godly leadership in the church elders shepherds who don't have to be forced to lead but do it willingly they don't do it for themselves but they do it eagerly they're not forced and they're not forcing people to follow them but they're exemplary they're examples to the flock warts and all And I've said it before, and I mean it with all my heart, and I've seen otherwise in other churches. Grace Church of Orange has real elders who take their role very seriously and bleed for the flock and lay down their lives for the church. And and Peter's talking about good, godly leaders, and now he's shifting, and in verses 5 through 14, good, godly followers of Christ. It, It involves the elders, too. But he says to the younger men, be subject to your elders. Literally, submit. Be in subjection. Be under someone else's authority. Authority and submission are not popular words. They're they're put down a lot. They're seen as negatives. And they're actually really good things in the right context. And this is the right context. But first, you need to acknowledge that you're under God's authority. As Peter put it again, you have returned to the shepherd and overseer, your guardian of your souls, your pastor and your elder, Jesus. And by the way, he's already given commands to be submissive in other relationships. Chapter 2, verse 12, very clearly tells everyone to submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Fear God, honor the emperor, love the brotherhood, honor everyone. Chapter 2, verse 28, servants are to submit to their masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives are to submit to their husbands. And then verse 5 of chapter 5, likewise, he is now going to address a different group, a new group. He's gone from pastors to the people, from shepherds to the sheep here, and he says, you young men, you younger members. And by the way, he's not just saying, hey, people who are young... Be subject to those who are old because that would break the context that he has been speaking of, of an office in the church of elder, of shepherd. He says, you younger men, be subject to your elders. I'll give you a couple examples of of what this means. Let me give you an example of Peter from his own life. Here's Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus is, is crucified and he cuts off the ear of malchus the the high priest's servant you think wow he wasn't a very good aim was he aiming for his neck and he got his ear instead it was a very merciful thing that he got his ear i think he had a good aim it was good that he cut off his ear well wait no jesus said don't do that so it was bad that he cut off his ear oh so he didn't cut off his head after jesus told him to not do that oh so he was subject to his elder jesus think about it if jesus hadn't said hey stop cutting off people's ears then then peter would have gone horizontally and chopped his head off a lot of blood jesus says don't do that so he stopped listen to jesus Think about the context of this church that's being written to, these churches, uh, about the, the situation of persecution, how they would, the young men would be tended to be more radical, and in a tense situation, they need to listen to the seasoned wisdom of their elders, much like Peter had to in listening to Jesus. And think of it this way, a lot of times younger men will be like, hey, we, we know better than the elders, they're just old guys, you know, they don't know what they're talking about and we got other ideas and we shouldn't go in that direction. We should just do what we want. And it's very easy for young men to get those kind of groundswell going and I've seen it in churches where then whoop, a group just takes off and does their own thing. I think there's a reason why Peter, the Holy Spirit's having Peter say, young men, be subject to your elders. Everyone's doing it and you need to do it as well, even more so sometimes there is a lack of respect for elders people think they know better than their leaders and sometimes there's irresponsible leadership sometimes there's leadership that isn't being respectful but Peter is saying these are elders that are doing what they're supposed to do so you shouldn't think you know more than everyone else that's just pride Peter's saying slay your pride slay your need for preeminence and to be right Put yourself under the authority of someone else. And slay your pride by what slays pride? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which Hebrews 4 tells us is very pinpoint in its accuracy, how it judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, knows our motives, slices and dices, and handles us with precision care. The Holy Spirit yields, wields the Word of God and does His His surgeon like work in our life. Peter's basically saying don't have any agenda but active obedience to Christ. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16 be in subjection. You will have no maturity without a willingness to submit. Ephesians 5 be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, Appreciate those who serve among you and serve diligently and have charge over you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work and live in peace. It's an essential attitude of submission to leadership. It's an evidence of maturity. It's noble. It's godly. Titus 3 says, Remind them to be subject to their elders, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, to be considerate. Hebrews 13 says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their their life, imitate their faith. Hebrews 13, 17, probably the most blatant command for us to submit to our leaders says, obey your leaders and submit to them because they keep watch over your souls. So your job is to submit, their job is to serve Hebrews says, let them do it with joy, not grief. Do you know what you're doing when you submit to, to the elders? Do you submit to, to God-ordained leadership that has been put over you? What you're doing is you're encouraging godly leadership to fulfill their calling. You are literally enabling them to engage you in fruitful life and ministry. So you're doing the right thing. But without that submission, you remain infants and immature. I'm a big fan of Abraham Lincoln's speeches. Particularly his greatest speech, not Gettysburg, but the second inaugural, when he brought the country together at the end of the Civil War. And there's some some very pointed Biblically based lines in there, but one in particular I think bears notice in this context. He says, with malice toward none and charity towards all. And by the way, malice is not evil, malice is directed evil, the intent to hurt others. We are not to, to be malicious to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially to those God has put over us in the Lord. We are to love as Jesus does. Because submission is an attitude that counteracts selfish pride. And by the way, you won't submit, you can't submit when you're filled with pride. You're too puffed up. You're bloated with self-importance. You're swollen with conceit. And God can and will painfully downsize us so that we can submit. Good followers of the chief shepherd Jesus follow human shepherds well. They're a part of a local fellowship, they're not out there on their own, and, and a submission is a sign of spiritual maturity. If you want to know whether you are standing firm in Christ, just ask: Am I submitted to God and his authority? And am I submitted to those he has put in authority over me? You might wonder, okay, Mike. Okay, Pastor Mike. Who are you under the authority of? I'm under the authority of my fellow elders, of the elder board. Obviously, we're all under God's authority, but all of us have someone in authority over us. The elders are under the authority of God each other we hold each other accountable and we are accountable to the congregation there's a mutual accountability submission is a sign of spiritual deepening uh, maturity standing firm in Christ it's good it's fundamental it's basic we're going to do one more today the second one we're going to see that in the second part of verse 5 and into verse 6 The second is humility before God and others. Humility before God and others. When you submit to God, you are acknowledging his authority. When you are humble before God, you acknowledge his greatness. His greatness. So first what you do is you allow yourself to be humbled by the circumstances that God allows and ordains into your life knowing that he is far higher and stronger and greater and better and sovereign. And then you live humbly before other people, thinking of others as more important than yourself. There's the tug of war. We all have the propensity, the inclination, moment by moment, day by day, to think of ourselves and our needs as more important than those of others. I mean, how many times... Do we hear things like, well, that's my right. And if I don't look out for myself, who's going to? And it's all a prideful self-protectedness because hurting people hurt people. But we are to be humble before God and others. And what you see in these two verses are two imperative commands. The first is, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And the second is, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Those are two imperative commands. Verse 5, clothe yourselves. We're going to take it in that order. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another because, quoting Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And I want to point something out to you that is very notable here. Go, please go with me to James chapter 4. And what I want you to notice is that James uses the same verse from Proverbs 3.34. In fact, James says many of the same things Peter does. Start at verse 1 in James 4, and it says, hey, there's quarrels, there's conflicts amongst the body of Christ, you got passions waging war within you, you desire, don't have, you you fight and quarrel, you don't have because you don't ask, when you do ask, you ask for wrong wrong motives, and then it says in verse 6, but he gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The hand of God is against the proud. The hand of God is against the proud. By the way, I want to mention this too. The verbs here in both places because it's exactly the same verse. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So in 1 Peter 5 and also in James 4, same verse, same verbs. They're present tense verbs and what they're pointing us to is that this is the constant activity of God. He is always opposed to the proud and he is always always giving grace to the humble. This is God's constant activity. It's very significant. But the thing I want to point out is, in verse 7, submit yourselves to God. James 4, 7, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. Verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he'll exalt you. Some of the same words that Peter's using. So I had to ask myself, so who said it first? And who wins on this one? James does. James was written 10 to 20 years before 1 Peter. So it is in the realm of plausibility that a whole generation of new believers had been brought up and they needed to hear once again what the Holy Spirit said through James and so Peter says it almost in the same way. You'll see so many parallels. You match those two up. Very interesting. um, The book of James... I love that book, but there's a lot of parallels to the Sermon on the Mount. I'd never seen this, this parallel with First Peter before until this week. Clothe yourselves. Go back to 1 Peter 5. Clothe yourselves, which is an inward attitude of your heart. It's, an, it's a word that's not very, very well known, this clothe yourselves. It's a rare word, and it re- re- refers to a slave that puts on his apron and gets ready to serve. I think of John 13 when Jesus takes a towel and wraps it around himself and takes a basin and starts washing his disciples' feet, starts doing what his disciples weren't willing to do, showed them the model of servanthood and said, now you do what I've done to you. Do for one another as I have done for you. Clothe yourselves with humility. It's an inward attitude of the heart. Now, submission and humility is despised. It was despised back then, and it's despised today. We have to ask ourselves, what, what's humility? What is it really? We all want to be humble. You're not humble, by the way, if you're the humblest person you know. What is humility? Is it thinking really lowly of yourself, kind of dragging your hands butt on the ground and just like, "Oh, I'm just you know, so lowly, I'm a worm? No It is a realistic assessment of Who you are before God And in relation to God You say he's my highest authority He's the greatest And and I'm one of his creations And you have an honest Appropriate assessment of yourself And towards other people So when God says think of others As more important than yourself You have to fight with yourself on a daily basis To do that The only place where humility survives is in the presence of God. It does not exist apart from God. That'll blow your mind. Just think it through. Humility does not exist apart from God. God out of the equation? No humility, only pride. Only place where humility exists and survives is in the presence of God. And it is an attitude of our hearts that counteracts our hate. So you move on to verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he may exalt you. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 57, 15 says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the, the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. You will be humble or proud. You'll be graced or opposed. The hand of God will be against you or with you. Micah 6.8 says, walk humbly with your God. Christians should, therefore, submit themselves to God's mighty hand, humble themselves, acknowledge his authority, and then acknowledge his greatness. In the Old Testament usage of the mighty hand of God, it signifies two things, his discipline and his deliverance. Psalm 32, verse 3 says, When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. But there's also deliverance. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Deliverance. Deuteronomy 9.26 I pray to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, who you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Exodus 20, uh, Ezekiel 20 I will bring out from you the peoples and scatter you out of the countries where you're scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In both of these meanings, the, the discipline and, and deliverance of God are appropriate in view of the suffering of these Christians Peter was writing to. It's appropriate in view of the lives we are living. And he says that he may exalt you in proper time. You know what I used to think that meant? Especially as a brand new believer. I read that and I went, ah, all the things I'm right about, God will vindicate me and everyone will say, you were right all along, So far from the truth. What it means is he's going to take you to glory. He's going to take you to glory. The the words in due time and Cairo, it means the time that God has set for the return of Christ. So you can know with assurance that your entire destiny as a Christian, whether you're being brought through suffering or glory, is chosen and ordained by God. Now I've got a friend with really strong hands i have pointed him out before i told him today i wouldn't do it i actually slipped and did it on first hour but this friend of mine with really strong hands does not have the strongest hands in the world no rich williams does big rich have you ever heard of big rich he has large but soft cushiony hands He's 6'3", 415 pounds, 23-inch biceps, 33-inch thighs, 23-inch neck, and a massive 66-inch chest. And he has won the world's strongest hand competition, which, by the way, have events that include the one-hand Vulcan V2 grip. He was able to hold an anvil... In one hand straight out by the end And walk for like 400 feet The dude's a beast Strong hands But his hands can't help you In any spiritual sense But The mighty hand of God I love what Jesus says I know my sheep, they know me I give them eternal life And no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hands He's too strong He's all mighty. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, the sovereign, invincible, strong, all good, all powerful, all purposeful, working for his glory in your good hand. You're kept. That hand is either going to be for you or against you. He will either be opposed to you because you're proud or he is going to be helping you because you're humble. And it's not just for heaven that we're talking about here. You'll be changed so deeply as you submit yourself to God and as you humble yourself before him and others. As you look toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You're gonna gonna reflect your position in Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Not resisting him, not fighting him, knowing he preserves your future. Rejecting your pride, confessing your sin, humbling yourself. You know, as we close, I, I want, to, I want to, to share with you some observations I've made about people who clothe themselves with humility toward one another. I've asked that question to myself. What would it look like in our local assembly here? What would it look like as a church if we truly clothed ourselves with humility toward one another? And towards God first and then one another. And I just want to make four quick observations and then we'll, then we'll sing a song and, and be sent out but first people that are clothed with humility toward one another do not deny the gospel or set aside the word of God they believe every word and they cling to it because they say God's my highest authority my own mind is going to is going to lead me astray but everything pertaining to life and godliness has been given to me in the word of God he doesn't spell everything out in his word but he's given us very clear instructions and if only we could do those we would have the happiest of lives The people who are clothed with humility toward one another and God, they want to know God and they they obey the direct instructions they see in the word of God and then they live by and apply the general principles that they see to the specific situation of their lives. They're unashamed of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. They're immersed in scripture, living wisely in Christ. That's the first thing about a person clothed with humility. The second is the people who are clothed with humility don't insist on their own way. Too often I am not gracious or merciful to other people and I hold them in judgmental abeyance. I hold them at arm's length in judgment. Well, there is no room, nor is there any excuse for hateful mean-spiritedness in the church of Jesus. That belongs to the devil and his demons, not God. So don't put your preferences or your comfort before the good of others. Don't go to the era of legalism, where you say, I got rules and regulations for everybody, and I'll wag my finger. Or the the era of licentiousness that says, I can do anything I want, and you can't tell me I can't, because I'm free in Christ. Well, that's pride. See, humility is like a fertilizer that helps the fruit of the Spirit take root and germinate and flourish in our lives. God wants to produce and see in us good fruit that remains And if someone consistently shows fruit that is not of the spirit You have to wonder if that person is truly regenerate or not They might be tacking on spiritual stuff to a dead body Even weeds have flowers Poisonous fruit has some semblance of beauty God knows the heart Third people who are clothed with humility do not let misunderstandings fester, but they go out of the way to make things right. Hebrews 12 says, don't let, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Now recently I've been working on on a pond in my backyard that's been overgrown probably over 20 years. And from the surface, it didn't look good. From beneath the surface, it was worse. Mucky, smelly, rotting roots inside murky, bacteria-infested water. I've washed my hands many times this week. Then there was the bamboo. I took out an 8-by-5-foot strand of mature, 20-plus, 12-foot-high bamboo. Roots and all. And I've worked with bougainvillea before, and it chops you up. But bamboo makes working with bougainvillea look like playing with puppies. I broke a pickaxe and bent another, taking roots that hold on like gorilla glue out. You talk about unforgiveness, you talk about roots of bitterness, a few little squirts of Roundup is not gonna cut it. You're gonna need to do heavy lifting and you're gonna need help. God wants to free sins captives and if you're wrapped up in pride, you are sins captive. And God wants to free you because Christ shed his blood for you. Last thing, people clothed with humility take repentance very seriously. They they seek reconciliation. You know, you go. Someone has something against you, you leave your offering, you go and be reconciled, then you come and worship God. I'll end with, with these these words Ephesians 4 verse 31 let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you Be imitators of God as beloved children and walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A lack of humility stinks but love is a pleasing aroma. If you want to know if you are standing firm in Christ ask yourself is there submission in my heart to God and those he's placed over me in the Lord and is there humility in my heart towards God and others in such a way that those things are evidenced in my life Lord God we thank you for your goodness to us in granting us your word for those of us who believe for giving us eternal life, we say that we're bringing nothing in our hands except we're clinging to the cross and clinging to mercy, and our pride crumbles to the ground in the presence of a holy God. And Lord God, I pray that you would, would soften our hearts towards you and others for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.